It's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Professor Danny Kwa, who is the Lee Kang Shing Professor in Economics and the Dean at the Lee Kwa Yu School of Public Policy at NUS. His research on inequality and income mobility characterizes the range of experiences across economies to suggest that a single narrative on inequality is unlikely to be correct or even helpful. His work on world order takes an economic approach to international systems, studying the supply and demand of world order. What international system do the world's superpowers wish to provide? What world order does the global community actually need? Danny is a commissioner on the Spence Stiglitz Commission on Global Economic Transformation and on the London School of Economics Global Economic Governance Commission. He serves on the executive committee of the International Economic Association, the advisory board of LSE Ideas, the eminent advisory council of the UNDP Bureau for Asia Pacific and the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council for Geopolitics. He is vice president of the Economic Society of Singapore and the author of The Global Economy's Shifting Center of Gravity. It's our great pleasure to have Professor Kwa present for us today. I'll leave him to uh, present for you and then we'll be back for Q&A. Please welcome Professor Kwa. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning, everyone. Um, it is a great pleasure to get to speak to you this morning and for me to share uh, with you some thoughts I have on what's going on here, but also for me to hear from you what you think. Yesterday, a news headline on one of the local financial uh, wires talked about how Singapore investors were beginning to walk a fine line as US-Sino tensions spill over into the private equity venture capital world. Now, there are a number of surprises in that headline. One is, why did it take so long for the PEVC world and Singapore investors to appreciate that US Sino tensions were filtering into our daily activity? Because most of the rest of us have been worrying about this for months, if not a couple of years, for at least five years, perhaps. But the way in which our lines of activity, the way in which our lines of business intersect and propagate ideas is different each time. Not for me to stand up here and tell you or other investors how or what you should be thinking. I can just tell you how things look like from where I stand, and it's up to you to push back or share with me what you think is useful to you. So to that end, I'd like to do three things in my short uh, uh, sort of intervention opening this morning before Amanda and I engage in Q&A with yourselves. The first is, how did we get to a point where an age of innocence and halcyon optimism settled in so that we all thought Asia was the future? What were the characteristics that many of you were involved with on a daily basis, but perhaps from a different perspective, a longer term perspective, from a perspective of now where we think that's no longer the scenario, how do we get to that point? Second, what were the factors that disrupted that? Who broke the system? And then third, I want to, us to think about some ways forwards from here. Now, some of the things I'm gonna talk about are from my perspective as an academic, as someone who talks to, to government and policymakers. I don't pretend to have any insight into what the right things to do are from the financial investor perspective. So, but I want to share with you what I think are valuable things to do. And it's up to you how you navigate that or how you might feel 
you want to speak to your congressmen or senators or other political leaders on navigating this journey going forwards. Okay. Okay. So one reason that many of us thought that Asia was the future, it might still might, but at least that confidence is shaken, is a chart like this one. This is a graph that showed the world's shifting economic center of gravity. Amanda kindly referred to this as some work I had done previously. Many, many observers, political leaders, international bankers, investors, in the late 2000s, talked about how the world's center of gravity had shifted. The world's locus of attention was moving east. And this was something that, while all of us felt it was also something that I thought had not been properly documented or calibrated. So I did something very simple. I said, how would a sixth former in Singapore approach the world's economic center of gravity? Well, one thing they might have done is recognize that there are cities around the world, farms, agricultural areas, urban centers, and then attribute it to each such center on a three-dimensional map of the world, how much economic activity was actually happening there. And then trace through, track, how much economic activity was unfolding over a trajectory from the late 1980s going forwards. And if they did that, you saw a pulsating organism of a three-dimensional globe as economic activity began to evolve across different parts of the world. Now, as this shifted, you could see that some areas were growing faster than others. One way to document, calibrate, quantify, simplify that idea was to treat each of these pulsating centers as associated with a weight. And that weight then allowed us to pull the center of the Earth, center of economic activity on the Earth, in different directions. If there had been only two centers of economic activity, New York and London, then and they were co-equal, then the center of economic gravity would have been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, halfway between the two of them. And if London had risen even further, as it looked like it was doing when I lived there in the late 1990s, then the world center of gravity would have been pulled eastwards towards London. But if it had been New York instead that had the lead, then the world center of gravity would have been shifted west, as the gravitational pull of London took business away from New York without taking biases on London or New York, what this picture did was, it said, look at the financial and economic activity on the world overall, where was it headed? And where it was headed is captured in this picture by how in the late 1980s, the world's center of gravity was exactly as I described, about halfway between London and New York in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But then from the late, early 1990s, it began to steadily shift east. By the mid-2010s, it had moved towards the Arabian Peninsula on a trajectory that, according to these projections, would bring it, well, we would bring it here, to GMT plus 8. This center of gravity, as it moved eastwards, did not shoot off into the Pacific Ocean. It began to cluster and converge to, to exactly where we are sitting now, to this time zone, GMT plus 8. And that was happening because of, among other things, the rise of China, the continued strength of the ASEAN bloc, the steady growth, the steady growth still of Japan, and increasing economic activity, innovation, trade, 
entrepreneurial activity, financial market activity even, here in Asia. That was one of the reasons many of us thought the world's center of gravity would move in this direction, and so Asia was the future. A different way to think about that, Kishore Mabubani and I documented through the increasing importance of the emerging economies and developing Asia. For the longest time, despite how rhetoric and policymaker observations suggested that Asia was the future, actually, most of the world was growing in tandem. So that the split between emerging Asia and the developed world remained roughly constant. Even as emerging Asia grew, it didn't yet have the, the, the weight, but it was growing fast. But for many decades, as this picture showed, the split between the G7 West and emerging Asia remained constant until the 2010s, when it then took off and emerging Asia, emerging countries around the world now have co-equal weight with the advanced West. And finally, this gets to where we're going to brush up against tension. If all of this was going on and the future seemed bright for Asia, Asia was the future, what might have disrupted that? Well, at the same time that these economic activity uh, landscape was shifting, politics was also changing. And if you looked at where the world's economic center of gravity was headed, it was headed towards this region, the center of a circle drawn in this picture, centered in Shan State, Eastern Myanmar, 3,500 kilometers in radius, that encompasses half the world's population. The smallest circle on Earth that contains half of the world's people is this circle. It's centered on GMT plus eight. And if you think that people's awareness, choices, political decisions matter, then there grew the idea that if the world were truly a democracy, this is where it would begin to make decisions of global significance. It had the economic clout that was already heading here. It had the people clout, the democratic legitimacy that was already headed here. Not necessarily everyone might have felt comfortable with this convergence of politics and economics. So that actually, what we see now as the, what some of us, some people have described as the re-emergence of geopolitics was actually the natural focal point of forces that had begun to move from the late 1980s. This convergence of the global economic center with its democratic legitimate center was going to run up against an idea that the international system was not run from Asia. It was run from somewhere else. And the separation between those centers that viewed themselves as traditionally the political decision-making focal point for the world, and this new emerging economic and political might in Asia, that did not bode well. So who broke it? I think there are a number of possibilities. So this gets me into the second part of what I wanted to discuss with you. Who broke the system? Well, there is one narrative that says this is nothing more than the most ancient of causes. 
This is what John F. Kennedy referred to in the mid-1960s, and Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, described before him, that the world has solved all of its problems except the final twilight struggle. That between the forces of democracy and freedom, on the one hand, and tyranny and authoritarianism on the other. And although there's a lot of Asia that the West recognizes as democratic, the great linchpin of the shift in the world's economic center of gravity was not. China, in the views of many observers' eyes, remained authoritarian, tyrannical, and in some people's views, communist. A continuation of a narrative of the Cold War where the struggle was precisely between political systems, great grand political systems encapsulated by the Soviet Union on the one hand and the United States of America and its allies on the other. But China is a more difficult case when we discuss the geopolitical rivalry, what I want to get to now. Sino-US tensions, as that headline that I read to you at the beginning of this, at the opening, uh, pointed to. America says that great power competition now is the focus of its foreign defense and security policy. It announced that in 2018, when James Mattis wrote in the US uh, defense strategy plans that the United States was no longer interested in the war on terror. The Islamic terrorism that had seized American foreign policy narrative since 9-11 was now shifting. America has shifted from a strategy that of, of many different dimensions, but among them, what angered many in the Middle East was a strategy of killing and bombing selectively, individuals targeted because they were known to be international terrorists. But in the process of doing that, alienated, radicalized, and killed many others in the Middle East and North Africa. But America was no longer going to be doing that because it was shifting towards a rivalry, not with Islamic terrorists, no longer focusing on a war on terror, but on great power competition. And there was only one other great power really worth the name at this point, the rising China. Russia, in the pre-Ukraine invasion days, before it again rattled its nuclear uh, armaments. Russia was a spent force after the Soviet Union. It was China that was in America's crosshairs. And the reasons that America had for telling this reorientation of its foreign policy was that China was steaming ahead, yes. It was shifting the world's economic center of gravity. Its gross domestic product was rapidly converging towards US levels. Never mind it had four times the population, so its people, even when it caught up, would only be one quarter the average income of America's people. America would still be by far the richest nation. But the view that emerged was that China was involved in ruthless, unfair competition. That China, having been admitted to the international trading system of markets, was applying the weight of its state in ruthless competition, and therefore winning the battle for company success, for business success. 
What irked the United States even more than that was that China seemed to violate, China and a lot of the rest of Asia seemed to violate a belief that America had that as other parts of the world became richer, their political systems would converge towards a Western-style liberal democracy. America was far from alone in thinking this. Seymour Martin Lipset, a sociologist, Canadian sociologist, many other Western academics believed in that idea and spoke about the convergence hypothesis that China's political system would converge towards the West. China stubbornly refused to do that. And in the views of many in the West, China began to move in the other direction, that it imposed authoritarian regimes in Xinjiang, Tibet, and elsewhere. It was ruthless in taking back Hong Kong. It had eyes on Taiwan. China was not behaving in a way that the theories predicted it should. And in constructing this new narrative on China, there grew also the idea that the system, the international system that China had leveraged to become rich was going to be undermined by China's growth. China was going to undermine the rules-based international system and through the weight of its economy, exercise veto authority on the social, economic, and political decisions of others around it. This was a clarion call that the shift of the world's economic center of gravity towards the East, driven by China, and the potential political legitimacy that that would attract was not something that America and its allies could countenance. And China did not help itself. China did not tell the story that it was liberalizing. Instead, China began to develop an aggressiveness that became known as wolf warrior diplomacy. China practiced a bullying attitude towards many of the people that it dealt with outside. It began to assume an, uh, a stance of territorial aggressiveness in the South China Sea, across its borders, despite what some of its leaders might say about how China's foreign policy was based on national sovereignty and territorial integrity, many distrusted China on this, especially its moves in establishing the nine-dash line in the South China Sea. So much so that when Russia invaded Ukraine and China consistently talked about how its foreign policy was based on national sovereignty and territorial integrity, and that applied to Ukraine, suggesting that China was on Ukraine's side, not Russia. Still, the Western narrative very easily constructed a story that sided and aligned Russia and China. Despite how China provided humanitarian aid to Ukraine, no military aid to Russia, China had been humiliated by uh, Putin, when he invaded Ukraine unexpectedly, two weeks after he and Xi Jinping had announced an understanding of a friendship without limits, despite all of this underlying reality, China's behavior in wolf warrior diplomacy and territorial aggressiveness gave easy um, belief, gave easy comfort to those who wanted to tell the worst story about China. And China's beliefs about nationalist exceptionalism, that it among all nations, held the peace gene, suggesting that other nations did not. Again, 
did not help China's story in this reconstructing world of geopolitics and geoeconomics. So where we stand now is, yes, you know, geopolitical tensions, great power competition. It's something that's been building in the story I've told for decades, even if it still surprises some of us who play in the different markets, who have to align ourselves with different understandings in different markets. What do we have to play for going forwards in the midst of this great power rivalry? Should we at this point disbelieve the earlier stories about Asia being the future? Because China sat here, its prosperity and growth spilled over into the rest of the region. Or should we think that this realignment of great power competition, this belief that China was undermining the international system and therefore China's growth has to be contained, cannot be allowed to continue. Does that make us in this room, should that make us rethink investment strategies and rethink our optimism for Asia? I want to, in closing, suggest that we need to be careful and deliberate in how we take steps going forwards. Don't make any sudden moves because we still have everything to play for. Okay. So there are three things that I want to mention in particular before I talk about the real world events that we need to be looking out for that give us an indication of the way ahead. The three things to play for include first, technologies for the future, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, telecommunications, biotechnology, fintech. These technologies of the future are now up in the air. Who has the lead on them depends on who's doing the auditing. The American scholars like Graham Allison, who consider that China is already ahead in 10 of the 11 critical technologies for the future, either already ahead or close to being so. China is already ahead on AI, quantum computing, on natural language processing, all of which are key for how we develop the global economy going forwards. A second thing that we need to be mindful of is critical minerals and rare earths. The world economy is in the midst of a green energy transition. This is the largest existential issue that the global economy needs to solve now. It's solving that not in the most direct way. One way to solve this green energy transition problem is for all of us to just shut off the lights, close off everything that we do, no longer fly around the world. That's not going to happen. The reason that this is an issue for many of us is that we're not trying to save just the planet. We're trying to maintain our standard of living at the same time that we save the planet. Because if all we wanted to do was the latter, we would just shut down our economies. We're not going to do that. And the reason that we need to realign that mindset is because what we need here is green energy manufacturing. What we need are the technologies that will allow us to keep our energy levels up, but still save the planet. The only things that we have on offer now are nuclear energy, wind turbines, solar panels, and electric battery storage. Nuclear energy, Western nations are divided on. France is now up to 70% nuclear. 
Germany close to zero. There's no alignment in the European Union on what nuclear energy forward, going clean nuclear energy, peace for peace going forward looks like. Wind turbines, all of us have the technology to do that. China manufactures 50% of these, despite their having been pioneered originally in Germany. Solar panels, China makes 70% of the world's solar panels. Lithium-ion electric battery storage that makes Tesla and electric cars and everything go, China makes 95% of these. And it's not that these technologies are unknown to the rest of us, it's that only China has been able to harness the manufacturing scale and the precision need to make these things at a quantity that's commercially viable. We will not move the global economy forwards on a green energy transition or any other way if the world seeks to cut off, contain, decouple China. All the discomfort that I've mentioned previously will be something we need to navigate, the whole world needs to navigate together. So going forwards, who's going to write the rules of the game? That is going to help us think through where our investment possibilities are, where we need to devote our attention and energies. So in closing, the way ahead for us is all of us need to get involved in this discussion. Thucydides is now well known again because there's the dreaded Thucydides trap that Graham Ellison, the Harvard scholar, described as the uh, natural tendency when great power rivalry happens and the rising power begins to challenge the incumbent. International violent confrontation. We call that the Thucydides trap. Thucydides actually said many other things. One of the things he said is this. Great powers do what they will. The rest of us suffer what we must. It is so seductive for all the rest of us who are not involved in the great power confrontation to say, you guys figure it out. My job is to do something else. My job is to be a green energy investor. My job is to look at markets, to look at private equity, venture capital. You guys figure it out. Well, I want to suggest that actually, no, the great powers will not figure it out well without us getting involved. The great powers, even if we count up all of the populations in China and the United States, still leaves 80% of the world's population outside of that duo. And unless we get into the thick of that, and help determine the way forwards based on cold, hard-nosed, grim analysis of the economic circumstances, but we leave it only to a political narrative of confrontation between democracy and freedom and authoritarianism and tyranny, the solution will not be a happy one for us. It is a fallacy what Thucydides said. Okay, let me skip the numbers about how India and China now are the sole contributors to the global economy. Happy to talk numbers with you afterwards in Q&A. But this Thucydides fallacy calls for us here in Southeast Asia or elsewhere in the world to get stuck into determining the system that comes out of this. We need to, yes, go speak to our congressmen and senators, speak to our political leaders, exercise what clout we have as scholars or financial market uh, investors and analysts, to get them to confront this tension, really think through why we are in great power rivalry, 
ask whether we need to continue this going forwards. Because if we don't, and we simply leave it to the great powers to decide, then the only choice left for us is to determine which sphere of influence we fall into. Who do we go with? What different financial communications, internet system do we buy into and leave the other side behind? We, the third peoples, the third nations of the world outside of these great powers, will simply have surrendered our agency to the interests of great powers who are much more interested in a zero-sum game of ascendancy. We should not do that. We should fall back to a time when one part of the world looked at the other part of the world and said, yes, you are a dangerous part of the world. But we cannot leave you, a billion of the world's most talented people, to live in angry isolation. There to cherish your fantasies, nurture your hates, threaten your neighbors, because the world is more to play for than just that. So is Asia still the future? Well, I think it is. I moved from the West here because I want to tell Asia's story. I still think we have a bright future ahead. But in the midst of this great power confrontation and rivalry, we all need all the help we can get to carve out the future that does make it work for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor. Fantastic start to the morning. I'm sure there's lots of questions from the audience. Does anyone want to get started with a question or still warming up? Yes, Christian, and then Bram. Just uh, your name and organization. Hi, my name is uh, Christian Falk. I'm um, the CIO of uh, an Australian pension fund um, called CBUS. I was just wondering whether you could give your reflection around the role of India uh, in this, because clearly they've got sort of relations um, stretching across sort of all these sort of axes. Uh, and, and obviously we've got the G20 and so forth going on. So do you see India as being sort of an influential or um, important country to keep an eye on? Thank you very much, Christian. Uh, I hope I'm saying your name right. I didn't quite catch it. Thank you. That's an excellent, excellent question. Um, India is the only other billion people economy in the world right now. And what it does will be hugely consequential. Now, we used to, economists and other observers used to joke about India's slow growth rate, that there was a, a Hindu rate of growth that never rose above 2% a year. India today is growing at 7% a year. Its transformation, its rate of transformation is dramatic. Its weight in the global economy will continue to grow going forwards. It's coming out of the pandemic at a much faster clip than China. And India has its own narrative on technology that makes it a very exciting proposition, seems to me. Now, in terms of geopolitics, of course, the perception is that India is the world's largest democracy. So, of course, it's on the side of the West in this great twilight struggle that Hannah Arendt and John F. Kennedy described. So the West, America in particular, has put great efforts into courting India. India is now, I mean, India is 
long been part of a, a group of nations that America has consistently uh, cultivated. Uh, America has consciously now referred to the Asia-Pacific region as the Indo-Pacific region, a subtle way to, to, to indicate to us that India is the major player now in this area. India, however, is very clearly driven by its own self-interest. It will align with the United States in IPEF, in the Indo-Pacific discussion, in the Quad, to the extent that it benefits India. At the point when American interests or Western interests diverge from India's own developmental narrative, India will pull away, is my prediction. Uh, India has long had its own version of what democracy means. It has its own version of what free market, uh, free market operation looks like. It's a constant struggle in the 1.3 billion people and the political leaders, the states in India, which way it goes forwards. So I think India is a very exciting gamble, a very exciting option. Uh, its weight in geopolitics will continue to grow even more. It should not be thought of by the West or the United States as a partner already on site and there forever. India will go its own way. Um, that let me, in closing, suggest a piece of fiction, a novel called 2034. Some of you may have read it or heard of it. It's a description of the next world war. It's a description of war between the United States and China, begun not by deliberate planning, but by the state of tension that we now have described, and one step at a time, natural human uh, actions. But it goes full-blown into tactical nuclear weapon strikes across the United States and China. I won't give the story away, but India plays a critical role in how the world unfolds from there. And I think that is very much consistent with India's own strategic planning, strategic thinking, and foreign policy now. So India is a valuable play. Very much keep it in mind. But watch out for its upside and downside, because both of those have significant probabilities. Thank you. Uh, table two, please. Okay, thank you. Um, great presentation, very thought-provoking. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to go back to this shift east, uh, from west to east. Have you done anything in there? That's more fact-based around sort of GDP and demographics and such, like, which I understand. What about confidence? Mm. And if you were to overlay that with confidence, I understand the economic side of this, but if you were to overlay that with confidence, certainly from an audience of investors, how, how would you articulate that? And okay. What do you think? Uh, that's a really interesting idea. One that I can't wait to get back to my computer to try and uh, craft out. But let me make some guesses on this because I actually looked at those numbers. I think that polarization, uh, confidence is polarizing. There's a group of uh, uh, sort of geopolitical citizenry and observers who are firming their convictions against China and against Asia, who believe that in this great geopolitical rivalry, America and Western Europe now re-energized and fortified by Russia's very unfortunate, tragic invasion of Ukraine. It has energized and brought Western Europe together that the strength of that will reassert itself 
and bring the center of the world back to the transatlantic region. In this part of the world, uh, we do have some surveys. China now has its people traditionally view, saying that the country they admired most in the world was the United States. This has been the case ever since that picture of Mao and Nixon for the last 50 years. But that's begun to shift. China's people now are as suspicious of the West as Americans and Germans are of China now. So it's begin you're beginning to develop a U-shaped polarization across these great masses. In Southeast Asia, the sentiment is yet of a third variety. When you ask Southeast Asians which economy or nation do they admire most for the economic activity and operation, they all say China. Then you ask Southeast Asia which country do you distrust the most? Are you most suspicious of? They all say China. <laughs> so the polarization is happening in a very stark way. So the, answer to your, the short answer to your question is that it could go either way at this point. Unlike you know, the economics and the people where the direction is very clear, we're on a very tense knife edge which you know, goes back to what I, 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 one of the messages I want to try and, and be sure to be clear about is, because it can go either way, the actions that we undertake will be all the more consequential, will be all the more important. We cannot be, we cannot be passive standards by at this point. We need to get stuck in, in whatever way is possible for us. Thank you. Related to that, um, Professor Kwa, you know, the, this, the, the implications of the rest of the world surrendering their agency, I think, is a really interesting thing to explore. Is the ultimate implication of all of us surrendering our agency 2034? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. Um, okay, so to begin the, the discussion on that, because you are referring to the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons, you know, there is an observation that uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, the dissolution of all the four former Soviet republics, Russia was a spent force. There were people who remarked that Russia was actually, uh, it's, it's one-seventh the size of Chinese economy. Its trade with the rest of the world, except for one or two commodities, is not significant. It has no national champions that we would point to, the same way that we'd point to, I don't know, Huawei, Google as you know, semblance of success. Uh, however, even the, most, even the worst of detractors will say Russia should be thought of as a gas station with nuclear weapons. The, nuclear, the pre presence of nuclear weapons changes the entire landscape. So you're right. On the one hand, the 2034 story says the rest of us who don't have nuclear weapons, who do not, should not be aspiring to that, are left out of the picture. However, that is a very extreme view. It's not one that I subscribe to most of the time. Most of the time, I think about the rest of us is actually having agency and influence in very important ways. And we have been able to make, to use a bit of economics jargon, the great powers respond elastically. We have been able to draw a line, draw a line in the sand and say this is where we should be. And the great powers have respected that. Let me give uh, maybe just a, f a number of examples. One, uh, disarmament. The Ottawa Agreement on, uh, on disarmament was something that 
the smaller nations, Canada, got together, told the great powers, we do not want to see greater proliferation, and the great powers set up and took notice. Uh, a second is the world's position on human rights and anti-apartheid. The great powers paid no attention to the anti-apartheid movement. Third world nations and third nations said this was an important matter. We need to put this on the global agenda. And the great powers eventually came along. Uh, and then third, that picture that I flashed for you about Nixon going to China and changing forever the, the, the nature of relations, not forever, but for the next 50 years, the nature of relations between the United States and China. Remember, China was the deadly enemy at that time. Nixon had his own political challenges to deal with at home. Uh, but nevertheless, he said, China, yes, you are a dangerous nation. You've killed tens of millions of your own people in purges and uprisings and in the Cultural Revolution. You are starving. You are threatening your neighbors. You've got nuclear weapons. But despite all this, I'm going to reach out and be friends with you. Right? And it seemed like it was just the great powers doing this. However, when Nixon did that, that was at the tail end of dozens of other third nations already having normalized relations with China. So in a sense, Nixon was pushing on an open door. Third nations do have agency. The rest of us, 80% of the world, we do have agency. But not in the sense of tactical nuclear weapons. We're not going to stand up and say, you know, you people get in line or I'm going to unleash on you. That's not for us to say. It's for the great powers to posture in that way. But we can work through diplomatic channels, through strategic means, through thinking about the power of our economies, ways to nudge how the great powers behave. And I firmly believe we can do that. Colin. Hi there, Colin Tate from Connexus. Great presentation, Denny. Thank you. My question is, can we reflect a little bit on how further on how we got here? Because it sounds like from your presentation, this uh, current conflict tension between the US and China uh, you're saying was inevitable. inevitable. Um, I'm particularly interested, though, in, in your version of how COVID impacted this, uh, where China was demonized by the whole world as being responsible for COVID pandemic, uh, and also how President Trump either you know, contributed or accelerated uh, the deterioration of relations with China. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. Wonderful question. Um, two, two large thoughts at first. One is that COVID is what the, marsh, the invasion of Earth by Mars and the zombie apocalypse should have been. There is one narrative that says that when great powers are contest with each other, what will bring them together is an external threat. If we were facing imminent invasion by Mars, or if the zombie apocalypse were actually happening, the world would come together. The great powers would forget this twilight struggle. COVID could have been that. It was a threat to all of humanity. COVID didn't care who it infected. It didn't look at your passport. It just infected you, and then it killed you, and then off it went again. But the world did not come together. So the first big theme is it should have done something to unifying the world. The second theme is instead it brought about COVID nationalism. It brought about a narrative in some parts of the world that COVID began elsewhere and was inflicted on us. America told that story through Trump. China responded in a similar way that it had come from a lab. And on top of just playing that blame game, 
COVID nationalism then showed up in the very unfortunate manifestation of vaccine nationalism. Suddenly, vaccines became identified with the countries they emerged from so that some parts of the world then refused to use the vaccine from other parts of the world, endangering the entire globe's public health. The story is, is a complicated one. Before we had vaccines, lockdown was clearly the way to go. Hey, in Singapore, we did a sharp lockdown. Right? Call a spade a spade. China did a sharp lockdown. America and other parts of the world that did not initially suffered tremendously in COVID infection numbers. There was one point, 12 months after the first COVID infection uh, was detected, for those of us who were keeping track of these numbers, China showed an accumulated total of three COVID deaths per million people. Singapore, five COVID deaths per million people from our strong lockdown. America, 1,800 deaths per million from its rather uh, more diverse approach to COVID control. Pre-pandemic, there was a story to tell and that China's approach was indeed the successful one. China got carried away with that, obviously. And when vaccines emerged on the scene, vaccine nationalism, COVID nationalism became uh, the way in which China continued its story. So convincingly, that there were many other parts of the world where Chinese, where ethnic Chinese uh, appeared in numbers who also believed that they should not be taking the mRNA vaccines, but instead wait for Sinovac to eventually show up. Sinovac, by all scientific data, far less effective, nowhere near as good a vaccine, so that China itself should be developing its own mRNA vaccine. But because China was late in the vaccine game, it continued its lockdown. And therefore, what was a successful strategy became an extremely unsuccessful strategy. And China has, has in its narrative, sort of cornered itself. It had to continue to tell the story of lockdown. And even as it developed its own mRNA vaccine, it could not immediately turn around and tell people that Sinovac should be superseded by this technology. And the worst irony of that is that the only reason we have an mRNA vaccine is because Chinese scientists uploaded the DNA sequence of the COVID-19 COVID virus. Early on, February 2020, they uploaded onto a public domain health website. Oxford scientists were able to download that, plug that into the mRNA block methodology that they were building, refine that, and that became the Pfizer and all type uh, mRNA vaccines have been so successful for changing the course of, of the COVID pandemic. China began very successful and was wrong-footed. So I think China is suffered from the COVID pandemic in more ways than is the obvious one. It, has, uh, it was initially successful. It refused to zag, but continued to zig when everyone else had zagged. And that was a tragic mistake for its own people and for its own narrative. So it could have been a much better story, but it turned out not to be. Let, let's, um, do you want to comment on Trump or leave that alone? I comment on Trump. <laughs> uh, we can save that. For I think save it, yeah. Um, I'll come to you in a minute, Faruqi. I just want to um, pick up on the point that you made about what, what is to play for. Mm. Uh, and we have a bunch of investors in the room here, as you know, and... Uh, so technologies of the future and uh, the critical minerals are the two 
outside of you know, the rules of the game. You mentioned that who's leading on those depends on who's doing the auditing, which I think is uh, an interesting um, sort of cynical, perhaps, view of the world. But um, does it matter for investors who's leading, or do they just need to get behind those futures? Okay, excellent, excellent uh, point, Amanda. When I said when I said what I did, you're right that I could have been uh, suggesting that we shouldn't believe these numbers. Actually. I think a fairer interpretation of the numbers and of the narrative is that it is a close competition. No one is obviously far ahead of the other. When American social scientists do the audit of Chinese technology, some of them will conclude that Chinese technology is way ahead. So Graham Ellison published a wonderful report on technology in the world, techno-nationalism, uh, it's freely downloadable from the Harvard Kennedy website, where he documents of the 11 domains that he thinks are critical technologies of the future. China is ahead in 10 of them. And you know some by quite a bit, others where they are still matched. But the, the point about, about that and who's doing the auditing suggests that it is a close competition. The data do not allow us to say definitely America ahead, or definitely China ahead. And this is such a reversal from the way that we used to talk about this 10, 15 years ago. Remember, 10, 15 years ago, wonderfully intelligent, perceptive people, Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, uh, the big tech uh, companies in Silicon Valley, were all unified in the idea that China would never develop any technology worth talking about. Why? Because China is not a democracy. China does not have free speech, open media. China does not allow a free-willing culture of innovation. So that was the narrative then. Today, the surprise is we're actually not just close, but China is actually ahead on many of these technologies. So, so my first comment on, on whether it's cynical or not, I'm actually thinking that China has come such a long way in this, on, on this successful trajectory. What should we be looking at going forwards? I would say something that you all already believe in, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't even put the great majority of your eggs in one basket because it's now a finely balanced game. Thank you, and um, just to let you know, Danny, as well, we've got a session coming up after this, some two geopolitical experts from some investment firms, so love you to stick around if you can. Faruqi, a question from you. Thank you very much. Um, that was an excellent uh, discussion. Uh, the question I have is we heard from another expert speaker uh, during the proceedings here. Uh, he framed uh, the, the China-US issue as more uh, uh, as competition rather than conflict. So in other words, that they, these two powers will, will, will do whatever is possible to avoid conflict but to have some sort of a managed uh, competition because they're sort of competing within the same ecosystem in terms of the global economic uh, domination, let's say. Unlike, for example, the US, USSR, where you know, one party had to sort of wipe out the other. Yeah. Uh, but increasingly, as a, I'm a resident in the US, uh, the sort of narrative that I hear uh, in the U.S., uh, in the in the public discourse, there uh, is one of increasingly portraying China as as more of an evil uh, uh, sort of a player. Uh, 
in this whole thing. And uh, we've heard a couple of generals come out making some uh, uh, um, irresponsible statements, such as uh, an imminent sort of a military conflict likely coming out of the South China Sea and so forth. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, I am a little less hopeful yeah. than <laughs> the sort of uh, uh, picture that, that uh, was, was presented. So um, uh, what is your take on that? That was um, Bill Hari, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, my good friend Bill Hari, don't see eye to eye on this. <laughs> um, so let me make two, two points in response to your very, very uh, helpful set of observations. The first is, I do think that if we are able to, uh, to navigate and shift towards a situation of competition rather than conflict, it could actually be a big boon for the global economy. Uh, like you say, the two systems don't have to be antithetical one to the other, the way that in the Cold War, the Soviet Union and America were viewed that way. Right? One sought to, the Soviet Union certainly made no bones about wanting to see the entire world go the Soviet system and seeking to, to, uh, to wipe out or diminish or contain America's influence in the world. My worry is that America's narrative towards China is beginning to take that kind of a flavor, exactly as you say, that they're evil, in a way that is uh, quite strange, I think. If you look at how initially the country that China's, Chinese people admire the most was the United States. There was never a time when the Soviets uh, were able to say that same thing of the United States, but China today is. I think if we move towards competition, there's still the hope that it's a kind of competition that is good. I mean, in, in our line of business, in economics, in finance, we, we welcome competition because that makes us better. We look at the other guy and we say, you're making this amount of money, your people are successful. How do I become like that? Well, I improve my productivity and learning, I improve my universities, increase my research and development, and I will be better, and that's how I will win. The kind of conflictual situation that we're moving into suggests a different narrative in that the way I look at you as the, the other side, I win by putting you down, by containing you, by keeping you down. I no longer think about bettering myself. And the two kinds of competition are now in play. My hope is that we can still shift towards the first. America and China have each improved the other through the last 50 years because of that kind of beneficial competition. One of the things that uh, Bilahari says at this point when I describe this is he says, I'm hopelessly naive. <laughs> that that is not the way the world behaves. And all credit to him, you know, there are many parts of the world that don't behave that way. But as an economist, I still think that's the way ahead. Now, if... But as, as an economist, you can make certain assumptions, of course. Well, uh, I, I say that, what I say is that if you put down the rules of the game and you believe that nations are driven by self-interest, this is the outcome as a matter of logic rather than by assumption. I think uh, others believe that you shouldn't assume that nations are rational, that they don't behave in, in, they behave in a self-serving way, but that's not rational, and they're quite willing to consider the other side as a deadly enemy that's evil, 
that needs to be put down. But despite all this, where Bilahari and I and many other observers will agree, even with the best of intentions, with the best of economic intentions, Taiwan is a danger area that could make all of our reasoning about rationality uh, meaningless. Because China has made very clear Taiwan is a red line. China considers Taiwan part of China, and it will not tolerate uh, certain kinds of behavior in Taiwan. Taiwan is skirting very close to that at this point. The paradox is that America also considers Taiwan part of China, but America considers Taiwan a bastion of democracy. That if China were to come into Taiwan, even though China is part of Taiwan, it's not something that America can stand idly by. America has made a promise on preserving democracy. So Taiwan is a red line that even with the best of intentions on everything else, some accident could happen there and we would all be in trouble. And then let me finish my observation about Taiwan. I know we're out of time by making another, by making another uh, quick remark. It used to be at the height of the pandemic. I don't know if Colin's still here. Every morning, I would wake up and I would go to the Johns Hopkins website to see what's happening in COVID today, in COVID that morning. Today, every morning I wake up and I go to www.earthquakes.com. And I realized, I learned from there, that in the last seven days, China has had two earthquakes. In the last 30 days, it has 22. In the last 365 days, it has had 260. Taiwan is a geologically volatile place. It has an earthquake every other day. Taiwan also makes 90% of the world's leading semiconductors. Taiwan is also where America and China are staring at each other with great serious intent. We are in a very dangerous world now. And Taiwan is going to be a friction point for geopolitical, geological, and technological reasons. Many of us might not pay enough attention to that, but we should. Thank you very much. What a wonderful way to start the day. Please thank Jennifer. <laughs>